we have a real problem here, and the drumbeat of his misbehavior is accelerating as we get closer to the election. I don't know what's next, but I'm scared to think about what it might be. Me too. And that was coming from a Republican. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Some interesting elections in New York on Tuesday. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets for your listening convenience on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Boy, howdy, thank you very much for joining us today. I know we often advise buckle up at the start of some of our shows. (laughs) Too often, unfortunately, these days. Yep. Uh, today is another one of those shows, Desi Doyen, uh, where I would advise buckle up. But I would at least, uh, I'd like to at this point, frankly, and honestly, truthfully here, extend that buckle up warning between now and the foreseeable future. Up to and including November 3rd and probably beyond. Our nation is quite literally on the precipice of of a breaking point right now. And there is going to be a lot of stuff that is thrown at us between now and November 3rd, a lot. And yes, potentially beyond. And that's even separate from how we are uh, being devastated right now by the coronavirus, which saw its single largest day, uh, largest number of new cases ever recorded on a single day in the U.S. on Wednesday. And a corresponding nosedive of the stock market along with it as traders continue to try to fight themselves uh, wanting to buy into this horse manure being sold to them by the administration that the virus is behind us somehow. It is, in fact, the opposite of that, I am sorry to say. But I'm not even talking about that, to be frank. I'm talking about everything else that is currently breaking this republic Starting at the top, starting at the White House. So I would urge you, as things get more troubling 
the evil by desperate people becomes more direct, more maddening, more frightening in many cases to just listen, keep your head down, stay focused on the only thing that matters right now, the only thing that gives us hope that we can and will move beyond these current nightmares and imperfectly restore our imperfect union with the hopes of making it a more perfect union somehow, someday in the future. And that is the November 3rd election, the November 3rd election of our lifetimes and the lifetime of this republic. Everything else is uh, not necessarily noise, but it is largely stuff that we, uh, you know, can't really deal with, can't really deal with right now that we can't really force to change until we make the immediate big change that is needed on November 3rd. And that extends beyond the presidential election to the election in Congress and the need to restore a Democratic Senate majority in the Senate and retain the one in the House. And not because Democrats are so wonderful, because they are not, but because they are not Republicans. At this point, and it is Republicans who have decided to abandon governing altogether and and abandon much of the promise of what this country was initially and very imperfectly founded upon. And uh, Republicans have chosen to go all in to go all in for complete authoritarianism as nothing more than a means of staying in control of the power structure. There is no governing philosophy in the Republican Party. None. There is no such thing as conservative values anymore. Not in the Republican Party. It is all only and entirely about holding on to power at this point for the party that controls the White House and the U.S. Senate and now much of our judicial system. And yes, that means uh, taking on Democrats in primaries who too often allow for authoritarianism to take root. And yes, supporting those Democrats anyway, if they become the only way to begin removing the unprecedentedly corrupt Republican power structure in the short term. I see nothing as more important than that between now and November 3, no matter how bad all of this may get. And yes, by the way, the lesser of two evils is still less evil. And that is horrible and frustrating and outrageous and frightening, but that is what it is right now. And what we can do is keep our heads down, keep our anger in check, focus all of that outrage on November 3, the last firewall, as I have called it. To that end... There were some elections on Tuesday in which voters took on uh, some of that power structure on both the left and the right. And we'll be joined shortly by the great Howie Klein of the never before more aptly named Down With Tyranny blog to discuss what we know and don't know about Tuesday's key races in Kentucky, New York, North Carolina, and elsewhere with some uh, noteworthy apparent victories for progressives. But we start with the U.S. court system today where Bradblog.com's Ernie Canning wrote a lengthy article a week or so ago on the unprecedented corrupt political in interference by the Department of Justice, by Donald Trump's Attorney General Bill Barr, and yes, by Donald Trump himself into the prosecution of Trump's former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, 
who not once but twice pleaded guilty under oath before two different federal judges for lying to the FBI about his conversations with the ambassador to Russia before Donald Trump was sworn into office. As Canning wrote last week, quote, this case is about far more than the fate of Michael Flynn and that the court in this matter cannot grant the DOJ's motion to dismiss his case without becoming complicit in the president's corruption of the rule of law. It would, he wrote, be tantamount to an abandonment of the judiciary's constitutional function to act as a check against executive branch abuses of power. Well, hey, guess what happened today? A divided three-judge federal pa- uh, federal appeals court panel ordered an immediate end on Wednesday to the case against Michael T. Flynn, delivering a major victory to Flynn and to the Justice Department, who had sought to drop the case. In the ruling, two of three judges on a panel for the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia ordered the trial judge overseeing the matter, Judge Emmett Sullivan, to immediately dismiss the case without further review. The third accused uh, his colleagues of the third judge accused his colleagues of, quote, grievously overstepping their powers. And here is our thin thread of good news in this story. The full appeals court still has the option of reviewing this matter. Now, I've read quite a bit about this case today, and uh, frankly, Charlie Savage's coverage at The New York Times is among the best. So I'm working from his piece here today. To order uh, the order, a so-called writ of mandamus was a very rare order, and it came as a surprise, taking its place as yet another twist in the extraordinary legal and political drama surrounding the prosecution of Michael Flynn, who twice pleaded guilty to lying to FBI agents in the Russia investigation. Flynn's case has become a political cause for Donald Trump and his supporters who have sought to discredit the broader inquiry into Russia's interference in the 2016 election and links to the Trump campaign. Earlier this year, Flynn sought to withdraw his guilty plea, which was in itself an extraordinary move that he had, you know, after he had pleaded guilty twice, saying he was not coerced to plead guilty and that the charges against him were in fact true and criminal and that he did in fact commit a crime. And then Attorney General Bill Barr, the most corrupt attorney general this country has ever seen by far, directed prosecutors last month to ask Judge Sullivan to dismiss the entire case. But before before Sullivan was able to rule on that most unusual request after the DOJ had spent years prosecuting Flynn, Judge Sullivan appointed a former judge to critique the uh, DOJ's motion. Flynn's defense lawyer then asked the federal appeals court to order Sullivan to shut down that review and terminate the matter immediately without hearing from either parties or further without further examination as to why the DOJ had suddenly decided to withdraw its otherwise completely successful prosecution nor why none of the career prosecutors who had worked for years on the case, you know, don't look into why any of them were not willing to sign on to the DOJ's motion to dismiss. Widely seen as a long shot by many legal experts, including uh, Ernie Canning at Brad Blog, who, who watched the hearing a week or so ago in the appeals court and thought that Flynn would 
be unlikely to succeed there, Flynn's lawyer strategy appears to have succeeded, at least for now, notes Savage. The judge writing for the majority was Judge Naomi Rao, a former White House official who Trump had appointed to the appeals court last year. So what do you know? She sided with the White House and Donald Trump and the DOJ. She writes in her ruling, the case is, quote, about whether after the government has explained why a prosecution is no longer in the public interest, the district judge may prolong the prosecution by appointing an amicus, a friend of the court, encouraging public participation and probing the government's motives for, you know, wanting to dismiss the case that they had tried for three years. She added on that both the Constitution and cases are clear. He may not do so. Well, the outcome raised the question of whether Judge Sullivan, who was uh, who has a, a, a lawyer representing him in the appeals court here, will ask the full appeals court to reverse the order or whether the full court might itself use a rarely invoked rule that permits uh, permits the full court to order a rehearing on its own without any petition in cases where judges deem that the matter involves, quote, a question of exceptional importance. Well, it seems to me that this case does involve a question of exceptional importance. A national security advisor having secret conversations with Russia, lying to the FBI about it, pleading guilty to it, and then having a corrupt attorney general appointed by the president who had fired that guy for lying to him, moved to toss it out, and none of the prosecutors on the case actually agree it should be thrown out. They wouldn't sign it. Judge Rao's decision was joined, surprisingly, by Judge Karen Henderson. She's a 1990 appointee of George Bush, President uh, George Bush Sr. The fact that the two of them turned out to be on the panel... Uh, was initially seen as good news for Michael Flynn because each of them have proved more than willing uh, than the majority of their colleagues to interpret the law in Trump's favor in other political cases like disputes over congressional subpoenas for his financial records and whether Congress may seek uh, secret uh, grand jury evidence from the Russia investigation. So those two judges had already been on Trump's side, so things didn't look good. Nonetheless, the ruling on Wednesday was a huge surprise because both of them, particularly Judge Henderson, as Ernie Canning detailed, had asked many questions during oral arguments that seemed to uh, suggest they were skeptical about short-circuiting the lower court judges, Judge Sullivan's review, before he decided on how to rule on the Justice Department's motion to dismiss the case. In fact, Judge Sullivan has a hearing currently scheduled for July 16. To hear the DOJ motion, which uh, Flynn is now attempting in cahoots with the DOJ, who is now on the same side as the defendant, Flynn and, and DOJ are attempting to bypass that hearing by seeking this ruling from the appellate court to dismiss everything quickly, throw it out without even having a hearing. Another point that uh, makes the ruling by these two appellate judges uh, is that they have, you know, th they would have a chance to hear this case after Sullivan's ruling in the lower court. He might agree with them. If he doesn't, then the case could be appealed up to the appellate court, and that would be the appropriate time to hear this case. 
But the fact that the court has jumped in now rather than waiting until after the lower court has had time to adjudicate the matter, according to experts, that is highly unusual. Now, the third judge on this appellate panel, Judge Robert Wilkins, he's a 2014 appointee of Obama. He dissented here. He said Judge Sullivan should be permitted to complete his review of the prosecutor's actions and whether they are permissible before deciding whether to grant the government's motion to dismiss this whole thing, citing the unusual circumstances of a Justice Department, quote, abrupt uh, reversal on the facts and the law. Yes, they reverse themselves on both the facts and the law. And uh, he said Judge Sullivan should be able to look into the opacity of what has happened here. Exactly why the DOJ leadership in opposition to its own line prosecutors suddenly decided to take the defendant's side in the matter and move to dismiss all of the charges for crimes that he had already agreed he had committed. The judge should be able to look at that and decide if there is a corrupt motive behind what the DOJ has in fact done here. In his dissenting opinion, Judge Wilkins said his uh, colleagues had made a series of mistakes that rendered a dead letter, the portion of the rule of criminal procedure that said cases may only be dismissed with a judge's approval at least in cases where the defense and the prosecution agree that a case should be dropped. Well, the judge has not given his approval yet to this dismissal. Instead, Judge Wilkins argued, the law requires that Sullivan be permitted to rule, and if Flynn and the Justice Department do not like what he decides, then they can file an appeal. The district court must be given a reasonable opportunity to consider and hold a hearing on the government's request to ensure that it is not clearly contrary to the public interest, wrote Judge Wilkins. In his dissent, he said it is a great irony that in finding the district court to have exceeded its jurisdiction, this court so grievously oversteps its own. He said this appears to be the first time that we have issued a writ of mandamus to compel a district court to rule in a particular manner on a motion without first giving the lower court a reasonable opportunity to issue its own ruling. The first time any court has held that a district court must grant leave of court pursuant to federal rule of uh, criminal procedure. That regarding motions to dismiss without even holding a hearing on the merits of the motion. Any one of these is sufficient reason to exercise our discretion to deny the petition. Together, they compel its rejection. I therefore respectfully dissent from the majority's grant of the writ that from Judge Robert Wilkins. So this is an extraordinary case where the the appellate court with two Republican appointees does appear to be doing what uh, Ernie Canning had warned would be the case, which is uh, becoming entirely corrupted by the already corrupted Bill Barr, who has been corrupted by the Department of, uh, I'm sorry, by the uh, President of the United States. So this uh, ruling could effectively end the case if Judge Sullivan acquiesces to the appeals court. We'll see if uh, he either appeals it at the appellate level or if the court does what I hope they would do is jump in and say, no, we'd like to hear this case. We're not sure that this was heard correctly. 
The entire court on bank would like to hear it. Meanwhile, the outsider that Judge Sullivan had appointed to critique the uh, DOJ motion, John Gleason, who's a former federal judge, he had argued that its argument for uh, dropping the, that the DOJ's argument for dropping the case was baseless and just a pretext for an illegitimate political intervention on behalf of a presidential favorite. As Canning described last week, Gleason uh, called the DOJ's motion, quote, preposterous, corrupt and politically motivated. Judge Gleason urged Judge Sullivan instead to move forward with the sentencing of Michael Flynn. So at this point, as stunning and surprising as this is, none of it really should come as a surprise, given the unprecedented nature of Bill Barr's politicization of the U.S. Department of Justice on behalf of his client, the president of the United States, who's supposed to be completely separate from decisions made based on the rule of law at the Department of Justice. And as all of that played out today, a very related matter played out in the House Judiciary Committee where two whistleblowers, one we played at the top, which was the former uh, George Bush's former... Deputy uh, Attorney General Donald Ayer. That was just one of them. The other one still works at the Department of Justice uh, and worked on the Roger Stone case. And he reports undue influence by Bill Barr and the president of the United States. Also, in that case, the prosecution of Trump ally Roger Stone, who lied to Congress and the FBI about his contacts with WikiLeaks during the 2016 election. In that case, after Stone was found guilty by a jury on all seven counts brought against him, the career DOJ prosecutors recommended he be sentenced to anywhere from 70 to 87 months in prison based on federal sentencing guidelines that federal prosecutors must work from based on the crimes in question. Well, after the uh, prosecutors had made that recommendation, the president of the United States tweeted, quote, this is horrible and a very unfair situation. The real crimes were on the other side as nothing happens to them. Cannot allow this miscarriage of justice. And I believe that it was the very next day, if I remember correctly. Yes. That the DOJ submitted a second sentencing memorandum, essentially saying, well, we don't agree with the first one. That led all four line prosecutors on that case uh, who had worked on it for years to resign from it. One left the DOJ entirely and one who is still there, Aaron Zelinsky, testified today before the U.S. House Judiciary Committee about the unprecedented interference on behalf of an ally of Donald Trump by Attorney General Bill Barr and other political appointees at the DOJ. What I saw was that Roger Stone was being treated differently from every other defendant. He received breaks that are, in my experience, unheard of, and all the more so for a defendant in his circumstances, a defendant who lied to Congress, who remained unrepentant, and who made threats against a judge and a witness in his case. And what I heard repeatedly was that this leniency was happening because of Stone's relationship to the president, that the acting U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia was receiving heavy pressure from the highest levels of the Department of Justice, and that his instructions to us were based on political considerations. And I was told that the acting U.S. attorney was giving Stone a break because he was afraid of the President of the United States. I believe that was wrong, and together with my fellow line prosecutors, I immediately and repeatedly said so. Unfortunately, our objections were not heeded. 
First, we were pressured to reduce the initial sentencing guidelines calculation for Mr. Stone without any clear legal rationale for doing so. When we refused to go along, we were instructed instead to disregard the guidelines entirely and to recommend an unspecified sentence, lower sentence for Mr. Stone. I was told that to the best of anyone's recollection, such a recommendation has never been made by the fraud and public corruption section of the United States Attorney's Office. When we again refused, we were told that we could be fired if we didn't go along. I notified the office that I intended to withdraw from the case rather than file a memo that was the result of wrongful political pressure. And while all this was happening, I was repeatedly told the department's actions were not based on the law or the facts, but rather on political considerations, Mr. Stone's political relationships, and that the acting U.S. attorney was afraid of the president. The Department of Justice treated Roger Stone differently from everyone else, and I was told that the department cut Roger Stone a break because of his relationship to the president. I take no satisfaction in publicly criticizing the actions of the Department of Justice, where I have spent most of my legal career. I have always been, and I remain proud to be, an assistant United States attorney. It pains me to describe these events, but as Judge Jackson said in this case, truth still matters. And so I'm here today to tell you the truth. The truth still matters. The acting U.S. attorney was afraid of the president. That is so far off the reservation of how the rule of law in this country is supposed to work. It is almost beyond description. As I said, stay buckled up. Keep your heads down. Keep focusing on November 3rd. That's what I'm doing. That's what we will be doing uh, as we uh, look at what happened on Tuesday in several primary elections held in New York and Kentucky and elsewhere as our ongoing American nightmare continues. And so does the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Yep. 
Yeah, well, there's uh, burning down the house and the talking heads. Howie Klein must not be far behind. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I am Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. And yes, it was primary election day on Tuesday once again, this time in New York, Kentucky, Virginia. And there were some Republican runoff elections for U.S. House seats as well, including in North Carolina to fill the vacant seat left behind by Donald Trump's newest chief of staff, former Congressman Mark Meadows. But while it was Election Day on Tuesday, that does not mean we've got a handle yet on all of the results on the day after the election, as the coronavirus has meant a broad expansion in vote-by-mail across the country to, you know, avoid sickening and killing people at polling places, which means ballots postmarked by Election Day may May still come in for several days after Election Day, uh, at least in New York and Kentucky, where there were a number of close races, uh, close House races in uh, which results could very well change based on what comes in in the mail in these late counted absentee ballots. Uh, The uh, presidential primary was also uh, held in those two states, in both New York and Kentucky, on Tuesday. As expected, uh, the presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, did very well. The only other candidate on the ballot, by and large, was Bernie Sanders. Uh, Whether he picks up any delegates from either of those two states remains to be seen. But nonetheless, as we wait for results, we're beginning to get a fairly good picture of what did and didn't happen on Tuesday in a number of the closely watched races. And um, few watched them closely-er than our friend Howie Klein, creator of the long-lived Down With Tyranny blog, co-founder of the Blue America PAC, dedicated to raising small-dollar donations to help elect progressives to office, And the man who I always point out knows more about U.S. congressional races than just about anyone in the nation says me. Oh, Howie Klein, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Nice to be back. Thank you, Brad. Let's start with what we know and don't know in Kentucky in the uh, Democratic U.S. Senate race for the party's nomination to take on Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell this November. Now, for months, it was thought that former fighter pilot Amy McGrath would be the Democratic nominee. She was favored by the Democratic establishment. She was recruited by Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer to run against McConnell. She raised a ton of money perhaps even outraising McConnell, as I recall, in some instances. But then a funny thing happened on the way to her nomination. She faced not one but two strong progressive challenges, one from another former military man turned uh, farmer and teacher, Mike Breuer. We interviewed him on this show a few weeks ago. And then another challenge by African-American progressive Charles Booker, both of whom McGrath had buried when it came to funding. But that, uh, well, that is not what appears to have happened in Kentucky on Tuesday, Howie. Exactly right. Uh, so we don't have the, uh, the by, by choice, the mm-hmm. state has declared that they won't be releasing the statewide totals of, for the votes mm-hmm. that happened yesterday until the 30th. So mm-hmm. next Tuesday, June 30th, they'll release the statewide numbers and they'll tell us who won. Mm-hmm. Because of that, the two biggest counties in, in the state, and, and really biggest counties, especially for Democrats, are um, Jefferson County, which has Louisville, mm-hmm. and then the county uh, that has 
Lexington, which is Fayette County. Mm-hmm. Those two counties said no, they're not releasing any numbers at all, nothing. Not one number has come out of either. And those two counties really decide the Democratic vote there to mm-hmm. a very big extent because they're so big uh, in terms of population. So what we're looking at right now is um, McGrath ahead, not by a lot, but she is ahead, but without the two big counties. Mm-hmm. And from everything I'm hearing about from inside those counties, she's, she's, she's not going to win this thing, that uh, mm-hmm. Booker is going to win because he's so much ahead uh, in those counties that she's not going to be able to, uh, uh, to pull it off. And, and I, I kind of get the impression from her people that, that they know that already. I mean, they're, you know, they, they still hope but they're, they're pretty sure of what's going to happen now. This would be a stunning upset, frankly, for the establishment, for Chuck Schumer, for the uh, uh, Democratic Senatorial what are they, Leadership Committee, whatever it's called oh, there. Senatorial Campaign Committee, campaign which committee. is Chuck Schumer. He, yeah. he, he used to be the head of that. Mm-hmm. Now he's the boss of the person who's the head of that, and he handpicks the person who does nothing except what he tells them to do. Now, now, this, is a, this is a rebuke to Chuck Schumer more than anybody else. Really? Well, this is right now, Amy McGrath, according to the numbers that we have, and we can't take much from it because it's very few numbers. Yep. Right now, uh, she's up by about uh, 6.5%, it looks like. But as you mentioned, neither Louisville nor Lexington are going to be in for several days. And huge African-American population in Louisville and, and Lexington. And, Lexington. Uh, and Charles Booker is an African-American uh, a candidate who... It was actually out there marching in, uh, and maybe even getting pepper sprayed, as I recall, in some of these uh, 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 protests against the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, specifically in Louisville. Right, and, and he's not just an African American, of course he is, mm-hmm. but he's also, uh, he was until he took this race on, mm-hmm. he was the state rep for a, a big chunk of Louisville. So mm-hmm. he's very, very well known there, very liked, very respected. Uh, his, he had a very good record in the state legislature. And the, the expectations from all camps are that he's going to do extremely well in Louisville. Louisville, has, as you mentioned, has a big African-American population. It's also the, uh, the progressive center mm-hmm. of the state. Uh, the congressman from Louisville is John Yarmouth, and he ran Quite some time ago, when Rahm Emanuel was urging everyone to run as a conservative, he ran as a liberal. He was uh, way, way early on. He was the mm-hmm. publisher of a like an alternative newspaper and uh, was advocating for the legalization of marijuana mm-hmm. uh, long before anyone thought that would ever happen. Right. And now, uh, very quickly, before we move to New York here... Um if uh, Booker does end up winning, and I should add, by the way, Mike uh, Breuer was also on the ballot, did not, was only in single digits uh, so far from the results that we have. But if Booker ends up winning, uh, I should say even if Booker or McGrath ends up winning, uh, what are their odds against uh, uh, Mitch McConnell in Kentucky this year? Any any sense of that? Yeah, well, there is. There were, there's polling out various kinds of polling. So one shows that uh, McConnell is underwater uh, with voters. They don't like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, of course, every single person in the state, uh, every voter in the state knows his name. So his, his voter recognition is very, very high. Whereas neither McGrath's nor uh, Booker's is. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have to you know, make up for that. So right now, the, the most recent polling shows that um, Mitch McConnell beats 
Amy McGrath by quite a lot, mm-hmm. and the same polls show that he would also beat Booker, but by not as much. So Booker would have less that he has to spend mm-hmm. on uh, getting his name recognition out there, and, and he, has, he has less ground to make up than, than McGrath would. My, my guess is that Booker is going to be the nominee and that it's going to get a lot closer. Remember, t- Kentucky has been running candidates against Mitch McConnell. The Democrats in Kentucky have been running candidates, and they all kind of run on like a quasi-Republican light platform. Mm-hmm. Booker will be the first one who doesn't do that. He's going to run as a full-out progressive for Medicare for All, mm-hmm. for the Green New Deal, for uh, raising the minimum wage to $15, to free college education. He is going for it. And, you know, who knows? Yeah, well, things are changing very quickly around here, in case you haven't noticed what's going on in this country. So, indeed, who knows? All right, let's get to New York. Because that's where we've uh, well, where we've got some real news going on in a lot of in a number of uh, races here. You note, however, in your report at Down with Tyranny today, Howie, that some of the biggest news was actually in New York 14, where freshman progressive sensation Alexandria Ocasio Cortez was herself on the ballot for her first re-election contest, and uh, there were a lot of folks gunning for her. How did it go? Yes. Well, let me explain something about that district. It's an all-Democratic district. Mm-hmm. Republicans don't run there, or if they run, it's just, you know, basically a vanity candidate. Mm-hmm. There's nothing going on. So <clears throat> what the Republicans did is they got one of their, I shouldn't say they got, a Republican, a lifelong Republican uh, named Michelle Caruso Cabrera, mm-hmm. who people may remember from her time on as a television anchor. Uh, and she's also an author. She's a Wall Street person, mm-hmm. and she was a Republican forever. She decided that she wanted to take on AOC, so she moved out of Trump Towers <laughs> and moved to Queens. Now, literally? Did she literally live in Trump Towers? And she's moving back, yes. She literally lives in Trump Towers. Wow, okay. She's moving back to Trump Tower, uh, away from the apartment that <clears throat> she rented and probably never lived in. <laughs> right. So here we have this Republican pretending to be a Democrat for the sake of the election and basically running on a, you know, a Republican light kind of platform, mm-hmm. although her record is horrendous uh, in terms of the things that she has had to say, especially in her book. She is a Republican mm-hmm. through and through. And huge amounts of money came pouring into her campaign. We'll, we won't know for another few weeks how much it was. A lot of the money was spent at the last minute, and they don't have to divulge that for another few weeks. But it was certainly over. Uh, it was certainly in the millions of dollars, mm-hmm. uh, and it was both from the Democratic establishment and the Republican establishment, both of which would like to get rid of AOC. And I don't. I, I don't know what the exact total is mm-hmm. because it's still votes are still coming in. But the last time I looked, it was over seventy percent for AOC, and uh, Caruso Cabrera I think had around twenty some odd percent. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of other vanity candidates who were running as well, who got you know a few points each. So uh, the, the establishment got slapped down by AOC, who I don't think sweated it too much. I mean, she had she had polling the whole time that showed that that she was untouchable. So. Well, and and uh, she won in just a route. It was well, at least uh, we don't have as as we said Not the, the uh, mail in ballots, but. 
They ain't going to change much. She's got 72.5%. Michelle Caruso Cabrera is down at 19.5%. So it sounds like uh, Donald Trump and his buddies and maybe Chuck Schumer and his buddies, uh, if the establishment were actually supporting this uh, challenge of AOC, uh, just threw a whole bunch of money down the toilet. Right. Well, uh, it wasn't Chuck Schumer himself uh, in this case, right? This wasn't a Senate race. Mm -hmm. That's what he concerns himself with. But we'll get back to that in a second. This was more about Nancy Pelosi Mm -hmm. and Cherry Bustos, who were the ones who wanted to see AOC taken out. Now, you did mention Chuck Schumer, and there's a good reason to, which is that there is huge pressure from the left. Progressives have been talking about this for a year now Mm -hmm. to get AOC to primary Chuck Schumer. Mm -hmm. And they're so serious, people are so serious about that, that there has been professional polling done on it. Uh, I saw two polls. I don't think either was released publicly. I'm not sure. But one poll showed her winning and one poll showed him winning. Mm. Wow. That would be extraordinary. Well, he's up in two years. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, there's mixed feelings about him in New York. There are people who like him, people who don't like him. And she's loved, and this is going to be a, a, a big feather in her cap now. And, you know, something like this makes you stronger. The New York press, all for the last, you know, few months, this was a story for them. It wasn't really a national story because people knew it wasn't for real, that she was going to win anyway. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely a New York story where every little thing got, got reported, and now she looks like a, a, a big champion. Hmm. Well, I, uh, personally, I'd rather see Elizabeth Warren, if she's not selected to be vice president, I'd love to see her become the Senate leader, and I'd eventually love to see AOC as the Speaker of the House. But, you know, a boy can dream. Let's uh, go. We may not have time for all of the races that you outlined this afternoon. We definitely want to get to uh, Jamal. Yeah, all right. Well, let's do it. That's the uh, New York, uh, where am I here, a 16? Yeah. So that that's yeah. uh, next to AOC's uh, district, by mm-hmm. the way. And it goes from uh, the northern part of the Bronx into the southern part of Westchester County. Mm-hmm. And Jamal is a, um, a public school principal. He's been in education his whole life. That's, where that's, that's his whole thing. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you go to YouTube and you look for him, you'll find him doing uh, TED Talks about uh, reforming education. That's Jamal Bowman, by the way. All right, go ahead. Real reform, not, not charter school reform. Mm-hmm. Like, he's the real thing. Great guy. Blue America endorsed him a year ago, and as time went on, more and more people started getting turned on to him and realized who he was and what he was all about, and he ran against a longtime incumbent, Elliot Engel. Now, Elliot Engel isn't like a horrible monster when it comes to a voting record. He's right. just a, a, a regular Democrat. He just votes the way the Democrats do. He's, he's really bad in two senses that did him in. Well, one of them really did him in is that he's been an absentee landlord, more or less. He doesn't, he doesn't go to the district. He really barely lives in the district. And certainly since the coronavirus, he hadn't visited the district. He, he stayed at his very nice home in a leafy neighborhood in, in, uh, in Maryland. Mm-hmm. And so, he, so people didn't know him anymore. Pe- literally, he did not have the advantage that incumbents have which they all have and they use, of, of, of complete name recognition. Younger people had no clue who the guy was. 
And he's been there, I should note, a 31-year incumbent, Elliot Engel. And I think he's probably most famous. People will probably recognize his face if they see him because he's always, uh, I think he's most famous for always arriving at the State of the Union address early so he can get an aisle seat and be seen shaking hands with the president, no matter who, of any party. He may have finally backed off that practice with Trump, I'm not sure. But uh, he looks like he is going down uh, big time to Jamal Bowen. Bowman. And, and yeah. I didn't get to the, to the second thing about uh, that's important about this uh-huh. part that, that makes him into a villain, which is that <laughs> he literally represents Benjamin Netanyahu mm. in the United States Congress, not the people of the Bronx and Westchester. Gotcha. He doesn't. He's not about them. He's about Israel. He's the head of the uh, the House. Foreign Services Committee mm-hmm. is the guy. When people talk about how Israel has, a, you know, a cat's paw on, in Congress, they're talking about Elliot Engel. He's completely supported by uh, the big financier, uh, an Israeli-American citizen mm-hmm. named uh, Chaim Saban. He's a dual citizen, and he is the guy who, when Israel wants somebody to win or lose, that that all the money that flows comes from Chaim Saban, who is a major, major donor of Elliot Engel. I would like to mention one other thing about this race. Yeah. Just think about the power of the people who got behind Engel publicly. Hillary Clinton, Governor Andrew Cuomo, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, the whole, the whole gang. Mm-hmm. They're all behind him. What, and how, what's his percentage now? What, what, what is it, like 30-some-odd percent? It's a 34.9 percent. Most yeah. Americans have been alive. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he looks like he's going to lose by uh, 25, 26 points at least. He was also backed, uh, Bowman was, backed by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. They did not throw in with uh, Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and so forth. That's right. And, and, that, and, that, and, and just about every progressive organization in the country backed Bowman. I'm happy to say. Let me. So, uh, let, and, and then, and, yeah. although I will mention one other thing, and then, and then I'll shut up about about uh, this race. <laughs> That's okay. And that was that the Congressional Black Caucus looked at the two candidates. They look at a progressive African American man, uh, Jamal Bowman, and they mm-hmm. look at a, a relatively conservative old white guy. And the Congressional Black Caucus decides that they're going to uh, endorse the old white guy. <laughs> now, how does that work? I don't know. I really don't know, but I don't know how anything works in Congress these days. Let me jump over to New York 12. Uh, This is where 74-year-old House Oversight Committee Chair uh, Carolyn Maloney. And by the way, Elliot Engel was very powerful. He was, uh, which was his committee? He was head of the... Foreign Relations. Foreign Relations, yeah. All right, so... uh, Close ally of Pelosi. Very, very close. So Carolyn Maloney, House Oversight Committee Chair. She's 74 years old. She's in a rematch with her primary opponent from 2018, 36-year-old Suraj Patel. Uh, He won, I think, 40% of the vote last time. And at this moment, Maloney is leading Patel by about one and a half points. That's only about 500 votes in that district, with presumably a lot of vote-by-mail ballots uh, still to be tallied. Does it look like yet another member of the Democratic leadership is going to be going down here? Well, I wouldn't bet on it, because it's it's so... It's very... if, I would say it's 50-50, but it's not even 50-50. It's more like 55-45. She's, I would guess that she's going to uh, scrape by. It, her, her problem isn't the work that she's done, which is just recent, uh, as head of the Oversight Committee. She's mm-hmm. just a new chairwoman there. Mm-hmm. She was just appointed when the... Uh, um, Elijah Cummings. 
uh, passed away. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what she's really been is a powerhouse on the House Financial Services Committee, and that's where she got into trouble. She is, she is the definition of a certain kind of corruption. Now, Congress doesn't define it as corrupt when you take money from, for example, Wall Street and then do their bidding. They don't, they don't consider that to be corruption. I do. Mm-hmm. She's the, that's what she is. Gotcha. She was, a, she was the chair of a very powerful subcommittee and was always watering things down in favor of Wall Street, and that, and that is why she was getting, she, had a, she, was, she didn't just have Patel, she was also primaried by Laura Ashcroft, who ran a vigorous campaign based only on that, I shouldn't say only on that, but primarily mm-hmm. on, on the corruption, the Wall Street corruption. It's an interesting district as well. It's the old silk stocking district of New York, which was John Lindsay's district, so the east side of New York, so it used to be a kind of a moderate Republican district long, long ago. And, and then the district changed. It still has that part, that New York part, mm-hmm. Manhattan part. And then it's also got a big chunk of Queens and, and a smaller chunk of Brooklyn. Mm. It's the only district in New York that, that has the three boroughs in it. So uh, we've got just a few minutes here. Howie Klein, who is, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you're from New York originally. Am I right about that, Howie? I am from New York. Yeah, we, we've got to get to... Uh, yeah. The other really crucial race, which one, is just uh, just north of now the Elliott uh, Engel seat, and that is a seat that opened up. So it's an empty seat again. Pelosi, mm-hmm. ally of big time committee chair, uh, Nita Lowy decided to retire, and part of the reason she decided to retire is because this young African American guy, Mondaire Jones, was running against her. And she decided, who needs, who needs this? I'm, you know, I'm old enough and happy enough and rich mm-hmm. enough. I'm getting out. And then, so Mondale was there. Well, immediately, a bunch of rich people jump in to try to, you know, do some self-funding and, and, and see if they could, you know, build up some kind of momentum around them. So there were, there were several candidates, but there were four big ones, including this guy, David Carlucci. So David Carlucci, I don't want to get into the details, but let's just put it like this. There's a, there was a, a, in the sta- he's a state senator, and in the state legislature in New York, there is a faction of Democrats that vote with the Republicans, and, and specifically in the state Senate, gave power to the Republicans, and that right. was the excuse that, that New York had forever, that they don't have to pass any really progressive legislation, because they'd always say, well, these, you know, uh, state Senate, we don't control it. Right. We'll lose the centrist Republicans. Yeah, this guy Carlucci was that. Okay, so he jumped in too. So there was a lot of fear that he would win. He had the most name recognition going into it, and that he was the one really ultra conservative, and the others were either moderates or, in Mondaire's case, the progressive. Mondaire beat everybody uh, handily. He didn't. He he certainly didn't have the most money. There were at least two that had more money than him. And he uh, he won it, he won anyway again backed by uh, progressives uh, you know like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and progressive organizations and AOC etc. So uh, is it fair to say that this appears to have been even though we don't know the final numbers and there are some other races that you uh, go through again in your uh, wins and losses column at uh, Down with Tyranny today, but is it fair to say that this was a uh, appears to have been a very good day for progressives in New York and I guess even in Kentucky based on what we what we know right now. Yeah, and there was a race in Virginia that was, that was that went for the uh the progressive guy in the race as well, uh Kasim Rashid. Uh yeah, so it was it was a good it was a good day. I mean there was there were uh, there were wins and losses. Mm-hmm. So it, so it wasn't like you know the progressives wiped out the conservatives didn't go that way. 
but thank goodness it didn't go the other way. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, I would say it was a good night for, for, Democrat, for, for, for progressive Democrats. And I think what's interesting here is, and I don't know how much of this is the AOC effect, where she came in, you know, two years ago and unseated a, you know, a decades-long powerful Democratic incumbent, but you ha- it seems like you had a lot of folks on the Democratic side really taking runs at Democratic incumbents, Democratic uh, leadership. And, and to me, that seems healthy for the party, even in cases where some of those progressives may not end up uh, winning in the end. Brad, I, I see it the exact same way that you do. Very healthy for the party. Let me just tell you that the incumbents in Congress do not see it that way. No, I know they don't. All right, finally, uh, I want to get to this uh, seat. Let's jump very quickly to North Carolina, the Republican side. This seat vacated <laughs> by uh, Congressman Mark Meadows in North Carolina, which saw a Republican runoff for the nomination in the Tar Heel State on Tuesday, where Linda Bennett, the candidate heavily endorsed by both Donald Trump twice, and uh, by Mark Meadows, he's now uh, Trump's chief of staff, um, and also Jim Jordan and all the other Trump flunkies uh, endorsed this uh, Linda Bennett woman. Well, she was defeated by a guy named Madison Cawthorn, perhaps the most Republican name that you can ever possibly find. <laughs> uh, but he is a 24-year-old kid, a political novice. He's going to Turn 25, I think, before Election Day, because that's required by the Constitution to even become a uh, to take a seat. Yeah. So what the hell does that mean? Are the voters in North Carolina uh, in this very right wing 11th congressional district? Are they turning against Trump and Meadows? No, no. As it turns out, uh, it is the most uh, it is the most conservative district in the state. And it turns out that this guy, uh, how do you say his name? Not Caulfield. I'm thinking of... Uh, Ma- uh, Madison Cawthorn is his Cawthorn, name. Yes. Yes. Uh, Mr. Cawthorn yes. is very, very, very conservative as well. He's a Trumper. Uh, and, and the way that Trump came to, to endorse uh, this woman, Bennett, was really bizarre. Uh, you know, Trump doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know one person running for Congress from another. What? And it was Meadows' wife who got a hold of Trump. Uh, uh, like a rogue, a rogue thing happened, and Trump didn't consult with anybody. So Meadows' wife calls up Trump, and it turns out that this woman is her realtor, and they're very, <laughs> very close friends. Jesus. And he, she convinces Trump to to tweet out an endorsement, which Trump did, and then everything else flew, you know, just <laughs> flowed from that. Uh, no one even, you know, all these people who endorsed her didn't really want to endorse her. They they didn't think it was the right thing to do. And they, and they did it just because of Meadows' wife getting to Trump when no one was around. Wow. You know, I'm starting to think there may be some corruption in this Donald Trump administration. You think? <laughs> I don't want to go too far out on a limb. Uh, Howie Klein, uh, downwithtyranny.com. Go check out uh, his full report on what happened on Tuesday, which will uh, continue to unfold, I suspect, in the next few days. He's also co-founder of the Blue America PAC, dedicated to raising small-dollar donations to help progressives, not Democrats, but progressives, win office. Uh, you can find him at downwithtyranny.com and on the Twitters at downwithtyranny. Uh, hey, thanks for joining us, Howie. We may give you a shout uh, when we get more numbers on these uh, various races, and I know there are still a few more states uh, with primaries to go over the next few weeks. That's right. Next week is uh, the Colorado primary, 
and the week and then the week after that we've got um, New Jersey. New Jersey is somewhere oh. in there. All right, we'll be shouting. Thanks, brother. Stay safe. Hope to talk to you soon. All right, Brad. Thanks. You bet. Okay, quick break, and we're back with our closing few minutes. Uh, too much news, too yeah. much Bradcast. Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes, they were waiting in Virginia. I, you, know, you know, I've, I've complained for years that uh, failures at the polling place that prevent people from voting are often minimized by media outlets as glitches, hiccups, snags, or snafus. Well, they aren't glitches, hiccups, snags, or snafus. They're failures, and failures that often rob voters of the right to vote. The Virginia pilot appears to have come up with a new one, however, not a glitch, a hiccup, a snag, or a snafu but they call it a hitch. Ah, a hitch. A new word. A technical hitch that delayed voting at Virginia Beach polls. They note voting got off to a rocky start Tuesday morning in Virginia Beach. The electronic poll books, which are used to verify that voters are registered and voting at the correct location, were not working properly when polls opened at 6 a.m., the issue seemed to be intermittent at first, according to Donna Patterson, the city's voter registrar. registrar. Uh, provisional ballots were being used while the poll books were being updated. Updated. They had to do an update on the electronic poll books on Election Day. Additional ones, uh, they report, were run out to the polling places by 2.30 p.m. 2.30. Wow. All electronic poll books had finally been updated and were working properly again, according to Patterson. All 100 polling locations in Virginia Beach were affected. Patterson was not sure on Tuesday how many provisional ballots were cast while the poll books were going through updates, nor how many people could not stick around to find out and lost their vote entirely. Uh, so uh, the issue caused the check-in process at polling locations to be a bit slower Yes, <laughs> a bit slower. See how you the think? media tend to downplay these failures. Um, the provisional ballots that had to be cast while the poll books were being updated won't be counted until Thursday or Friday. So listen, uh, the folks in Virginia, uh, they ought to consider them, themselves lucky. I mean, this is a state where after years of voting on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreens, they finally moved to a verifiable hand-marked paper ballot system. But of course, when they did, they have to have their computer fix, I guess. So they go to computerized electronic poll books, which when they fail, voters also can't vote. But I guess at least they know they can't vote as opposed to whatever happens to their votes on those touchscreen voting systems. Uh, anyway, that was just a little bit more of the fun on uh, Tuesday uh, in our elections. We will continue to cover them because, as I say, it, this is our only firewall, November 3. Hold the Stay door. Stay focused. Hold the door. 
Uh, thanks to our uh, our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Howie Klein of Down With Tyranny, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of the show or any other, you can download them all for free at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I read them all. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at TheBradBlog. And that is it. Until tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>